Act One of Tartuffe. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Tartuffe or the Hypocrite by Jean-Baptiste Poquelon Molière. Translated by Curtis Hidden Page. Characters. Madame Panel, read by Hippo Gonzalez. Orgon, read by Adam. Elmire, read by Valerie Tan. Damus, read by Uday Sagor. Marianne, read by Elizabeth Clatt. Cliente, recording by Siddharth. Tartuffe, read by Todd. Doreen, read by Amanda Friday. Mr. Loyal, read by David Lawrence. The Police Officer, read by Grace Garrett. Stage directions read by Laurie Ann Walden. The scene is at Paris. Scene 1. Madame Purnell and Flippot, her servant, Elmire, Marianne, Cléant, Damis, Doreen. Come, come, Flippote, and let me get away. You hurry so, I hardly can attend you. Then don't, my daughter-in-law. Stay where you are. I can dispense with your polite attentions. We're only paying what is due you, mother. Why must you go away in such a hurry? Because I can't enjoy your carryings on. And no one takes the slightest pains to please me. I'll leave you a house, I tell you, quite disgusted. You do the opposite of my instructions. You have no respect for anything, each one. Myself, you say, it's perfect pandemonium. If your servant wench, my girl, I'm much too full for gab and too impertinent and free with your advice in all occasions. But you're a fool, my boy. F-O-O-L. Just spells your name. Let grandma tell you that. I've said a hundred times from my poor son, your father, that you never come to good. We'll give anything but pagan torment. I think... Oh, dearie me, his little sister. You're all demureness. Better wouldn't melt in your mouth. One more thing to look at you. Still waters, though, they say. You know the proverb, and I don't like your doings on the sly. But, mother... Don't all by your leave, your conduct in everything is altogether wrong. You ought to set a good example for him. Does your departed mother did much better. You are extravagant, and it defends me. Is he always deck out like a princess, a woman who would please her husband's eyes? Alone. Wants no such wealth of fineries. But, madam, after all... Sir, ask for you. To lady's brother, I esteem you highly. Love and respect you. But, sir, all the same if I were in my son's, her husband's place, I'd urgently entreat you not to come within our doors. The preacher way of leaving that decent people cannot tolerate. I'm rather frank with you, but that's my way. I don't mean smarters when I mean a thing. Mr. Tartuff, your friend, is my lucky. He is a holy man, and must be heeded. I can't endure with any show of patience to have a scut of brains like you attack him. What? Shall I let a bigot criticaster come and usurp a tyrant's power here? And shall we never dare amuse ourselves till this fine gentleman designs to consent? If we must hark to him and heed his maxims, there's not a thing we do but what's a crime. He censures everything, this zealous copper. And all he censures is well censured, too. He wants to guide you on the way to heaven. My son should train you all to love him well. No, madam, look you, nothing, not my father, nor anything, can make me tolerate him. I should believe my feelings not to say so. His actions rouse my wrath at every turn, and I foresee that there must come of it an open rupture with this sneaking scoundrel. Besides, 
"'Tis downright scandalous to see this unknown upstart master of the house, "'this vagabond, who hadn't, when he came, "'shoes to his feet or clothing worth six farthings, "'and who so far forgets his place "'as now to censure everything and rule the roost.' "'Hey, mercy sakes alive! "'Things would go better if all were governed by his pious orders.' "'He passes for a saint in your opinion. "'In fact, he's nothing but a hypocrite.' "'Just listen to her tongue!' I wouldn't trust him, nor yet his Lawrence, without bonds and surety. I don't know what a servant's character may be, but I can guarantee the master a holy man. You hate him and reject him because he tells home fruits to all of you. To sin alone that moves his heart to anger, and heaven's interest is only motive. Of course. But why, especially of late, can he let nobody come near the house? Is heaven offended at a civil call that he should make so great a fuss about it? I'll tell you, if you like, just what I think. Pointing to Elmire. Upon my word, he's jealous of our mistress. You hold your tongue and you think what you're saying. He's not to learn censuring this visit. But to more that attends your sort of people, the carriage is forever at the door. And all the noisy footmen flock together, and all the neighbourhood, and raise a scandal. I gladly think that there's nothing really wrong. But it makes talk. And that's not as it should be. Eh, madam, can you hope to keep folks' tongues from wagging? It would be a grievous thing if, for the fear of idle talk about us, we had to sacrifice our friends. No, no, even if we could bring ourselves to do it. Think you that everyone would then be silenced? Against backbiting there is no defense. So let us try to live in innocence. To silly tattle, pay no heed at all and leave the gossips free to vent their gall. Our neighbour Daphne and her little husband must be the ones who slander us, I'm thinking. Those whose own conduct's most ridiculous are always quickest to speak ill of others. They never fail to seize at once upon the slightest hint of any love affair and spread the news of it with glee and give it the character they'd have the world believe in. By others' actions, painted in their colours, they hope to justify their own. They think, in the false hope of some resemblance, either to make their own intrigue seem innocent, or else to make their neighbours share the blame which they are loaded with by everybody. These arguments are nothing to the purpose. Ronte, we all know, lives a perfect life. Her thoughts are all of heaven, and I have heard that she condemns the company you keep. Oh, admirable pattern! Virtuous dame! She lives the model of austerity. But age has brought this piety upon her, and she's a prude. Now she can't help herself. As long as she could capture men's attentions, she made the most of her advantages. But now she sees her beauty vanishing. She wants to leave the world that's leaving her, and in a specious veil of haughty virtue, she'd hide the weakness of her worn-out charms. That is the way with all your old coquettes. They find it hard to see their lovers leave them, and thus abandoned, their forlorn estate can find no occupation but a prude's. These pious dames, in their austerity, must carp at everything, and pardon nothing. They loudly blame their neighbour's way of living, not for religion's sake, but out of envy, because they can't endure to see another enjoy the pleasures age has weaned them from. There, to Elmir. That's a kind of rigmarole to please you. 
daughter-in-law, one has never a chance to get a word in edgewise at your house, because this lady holds the floor all day, but nonetheless I mean to have my say, too. I tell you that my son did nothing wiser in all his life than take this godly man into his household. Heaven sent him here. In your great need to make you all repent, for your salvation you must hearken him. He censures nothing but deserves his censure. These visits, these assemblies, and these balls are all inventions of the evil spirit. You never hear a word of godliness at them, but idle cackle, nonsense, flim-flam. Our neighbour often comes in him for a share. The talk flies fast, and scandal fills the air, and makes a sob of persons head go round. At this assembly is just to hear the sound of so much gab with not a word to say. And as a learned man remarked one day, most aptly, this the Tower of Babylon, where all beyond all limits babble on. And just to tell you how this point came in. To Cleon. So, now the gentleman's nicker, must he? Go find fools like yourself to make you laugh, and don't. To Elmir. Daughter, good-bye, not one word more. As for this house, I leave the half and said. But I shan't soon set foot in it again. Cuffing, Flippot. Come, you. What makes you dream on stand the gate? Hussy, I'll warm your ears in proper shape. March, Trollop, march. Scene two. Cleot, Doreen. I won't escort her down, for fear she might fall foul of me again, the good old lady. Bless us! What a pity she shouldn't hear the way you speak of her. She'd surely tell you you're too good by half, and that she's not so old as all that, neither. How she got angry with us all for nothing, and how she seems possessed with her tartuffe. Her case is nothing, though, beside her son's. To see him, you would say he's ten times worse. His conduct in our late unpleasantness had won him such esteem, and proved his courage in service of his king. But now he's like a man besotted, since he's been so taken with this tartuffe. He calls him brother, loves him a hundred times as much as mother, son, daughter, and wife. He tells him all his secrets, and lets him guide his acts, and rule his conscience. He fondles and embraces him. A sweetheart could not, I think, be loved more tenderly. At table he must have the seat of honour, while with delight our master sees him eat as much as six men could. We must give up the choicest tidbits to him. If he belches, tis a servant speaking, master exclaims, God bless you! Oh, he dotes upon him! He's his universe, his hero! He's lost in constant admiration, quotes him on all occasions, takes his trifling acts for wonders, and his words for oracles. The fellow knows his dupe, and makes the most aunt. He fools him with a hundred masks of virtue, gets money from him all the time by canting, and takes upon himself to carp at us. Even his silly coxcomb of a lackey makes it his business to instruct us, too. He comes with rolling eyes to preach at us, and throws away our ribbons, rouge, and patches. The wretch the other day tore up a kerchief that he had found pressed in the golden legend, calling it a horrid crime for us to mingle the devil's finery with holy things. Scene 3. Elmir, Marianne, Damis, Cleon, Doreen. Elmir to Cleon. You're very lucky to have missed the speech she gave us at the door. I see my husband is home again. He hasn't seen me yet, so I'll go up and wait till he comes in. And I, to save time, 
will await him here. I'll merely say good morning and be gone. Scene 4. Cleon, Thomas, Doreen. I wish you'd say a word to him about my sister's marriage. I suspect Tartuffe opposes it and puts my father up to all these wretched shifts. You know, besides, how nearly I'm concerned in it myself. If love unites my sister and Valère, I love his sister too. And if this marriage were He's to... He's coming. Scene 5. Organ, Cleot, Doreen. Ah, good morning, brother. I was just going, but I'm glad to greet you. Things are not far advanced yet in the country. Doreen? To Cleon. Just wait, wait a bit, please, brother-in-law. Let me allay my first anxiety by asking news about the family. To Doreen. Has everything gone well these last two days? What's happening and how is everybody? Madam had fever and a splitting headache day before yesterday, all day and evening. And how about Tartuffe? Tartuffe? He's well. He's mighty well. Stout, fat, fair, rosy-lipped. Poor man! At evening she had nausea and couldn't touch a single thing for supper. Her headache still was so severe. And how about Tartuffe? He supped alone, before her, and unctuously ate up two partridges, as well as half a leg of mutton, deviled. Poor man! All night she couldn't get a wink of sleep. The fever racked her so, and we had to sit up with her till daylight. How about Tartuffe? Gently inclined to slumber, he left the table, went into his room, got himself straight into a good warm bed, and slept quite undisturbed until next morning. Poor man! At last she let us all persuade her, and got up courage to be bled, and then she was relieved at once. And how about Tartuffe? He plucked up courage properly, bravely entrenched his soul against all evils, and to replace the blood that she had lost, he drank at breakfast four huge draughts of wine. Poor man. So now they both are doing well. And I'll go straight away and inform my mistress how pleased you are at her recovery. Scene 6. Organ Cleon. Brother, she ridicules you to your face, and I, though I don't want to make you angry, must tell you candidly that she is quite right. Was such infatuation ever heard of? And can a man today have charms to make you forget all else, relieve his poverty, give him a home, and then... Stop there! Good brother, you do not know the man you're speaking of. Since you will have it so, I do not know him. But after all, to tell what sort of a man he is... Dear brother, you'd be charmed to know him. Your raptures over him would have no end. He is a man who... ah, In fact, a man who... Whoever does his will knows perfect peace and counts the whole world else as so much dung. His converse has transformed me quite. He weans my heart from every friendship, teaches me to have no love for anything on earth, and I could see my brother, children, mother, and wife all die and never care. A snap! Your feelings are humane, I must say, brother. Ah, if you'd seen him as I saw him first, 
you would have loved him just as much as I. He came to church each day with contrite mien, kneeled on both knees right opposite my place, and drew the eyes of all the congregation to watch the fervor of his prayers to heaven. With deep-drawn sighs and great ejaculations, he humbly kissed the earth at every moment, and when I left the church, he ran before me to give me holy water at the door. I learned his poverty and who he was by questioning his servant, who is like him, and gave him gifts, but in his modesty he always wanted to return a part. It's too much, he'd say, oh, too much by half. I'm not worthy of your pity. Then, when I refused to take it back, he'd go before my eyes and give it to the poor. At length heaven bade me to take him to my home, and since that day all seems to prosper here. He censures everything, and for my sake he even takes great interest in my wife. He lets me know who ogles her, and seems six times as jealous as I am myself. You'd not believe how far his zeal can go. He calls himself a sinner just for trifles. The merest nothing is enough to shock him. So much so that the other day I heard him accuse himself for having, while at prayer, in too much anger, caught and killed a flea. Zounds, brother. You're mad, I think. Or else you're making sport of me with such a speech. What are you driving at with all this nonsense? Brother! Your language smacks of atheism, and I suspect your soul's a little tainted therewith. I've preached to you a score of times that you'll draw down some judgment on your head. That is the usual strain of all your kind. They must have every one as blind as they. They call you atheists if you have good eyes, and if you don't adore their vain grimaces. You've neither faith nor care for sacred things. No, no. Such talk can't frighten me. I know what I'm saying. Heaven sees my heart. We are not the dupes of all your canting murmurs. There are false heroes and false devotees. And as true heroes never are the ones who make much noise about their deeds of honor. Just so true devotees whom we should follow are not the ones who make so much vain show. What? Will you find no difference between hypocrisy and genuine devoutness? And will you treat them both alike and pay the self-same honor both to masks and faces? Set artifice beside sincerity? Confuse the semblance with reality? Esteem a phantom like a living person? And counterfeit as good as honest coin? Men, for the most part, are strange creatures. Truly, you never find keep the golden mean, the limits of good sense too narrow for them, must always be passed by in each direction. They often spoil the noblest things because they go too far and push them to extremes. I merely say this, by the way, good brother. You are the sole expounder of the doctrine. Wisdom shall die with you, no doubt, good brother. You are the only wise, the sole enlightened the oracle, the Cato of our age. All men, compared to you, are downright fools. 
I am not the sole expounder of the doctrine, and wisdom shall not die with me, good brother. But this I know, though it be all my knowledge, that there is a difference twixt false and true. And as I find no hero more to be admired than men of true religion, nothing more noble or more beautiful than is the holy zeal of true devoutness, just so I think there is not more odious than whited sepulchres of outward unction. Those barefaced charlatans, those hireling zealots, whose sacrilegious, treacherous pretense deceives at will and with impunity makes mockery of all that men hold sacred, men who, enslaved to selfish interests, make trade and merchandise of godliness and try to purchase influence and office, with false eye-rollings and affected raptures, those men, I say, who with uncommon zeal seek their own fortunes on the road to heaven, who, skilled in prayer, have always much to ask, and live at court to preach retirement, who reconcile religion with their vices, are quick to anger, vengeful, faithless, tricky, and to destroy a man will have their boldness, to call their private crunch the cause of heaven, all the more dangerous, since in their anger they use against us weapons men revere, and since they make the world applaud their passion and seek to stab us with a sacred sword. There are too many of this scanting kind. Still, the sincere are easy to distinguish, and many splendid patterns may be found. In our own time, therefore, our very eyes look at Ariston, Periandre, Oronte, Alcidamas, Clitandre, and Polydor. No one denies their claim to true religion, yet they are no braggadocio of virtue, they do not make insufferable display, and their religion is human, tractable. They are not always judging all our actions. They think such judgment savoured of presumption and leaving pride of words to other men. This, by their deeds alone, they censure ours. Evil appearances find little credit with them. They are even inclined to think the best of others, no cabalers, no intriguers, they mind the business of their own right living. They don't attack a sinner tooth and nail, for since the only object of their hatred. Nor are they overzealous to attempt far more in heaven's behalf than heaven would have had them. That is my kind of man. That is true living. That is the pattern we should set ourselves. Your fellow was not fashioned on this model. You are quite sincere in boasting of his zeal, but you are deceived, I think, by false pretenses. My dear good brother-in-law, have you quite done? Yes. I am your humble servant. Starts to go. Just a word. We'll drop that other subject. But you know, Valerie has had the promise of your daughter. Yes. You had named the happy day. Tis true. Then why put off the celebration of it? I can't say. Can you have some other plan in mind? Perhaps. You mean to break your word? I don't say that. I hope no obstacle can keep you from performing what you promised. Well, that depends. Why must you beat about? Valerie has sent me here to settle matters. Heaven be praised. What answer shall I take him? Why, anything you please. But we must know your plans. What are they? 
I shall do the will of heaven. Come, be serious. You have given your promise to Valerie. Now, will you keep it? Goodbye. Alone. His love, methinks, has much to fear. I must go. Let him know what's happening here. End of Act One.